Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I am once again your kind and generous host, Jason Rosenbaum with St. Louis Public Radio. Alongside me in studio in St. Louis is... Joe Manis, and I'll withhold the kind and generous. I, I'm, I, again, I am ruthless and evil. And our very special guest who's come all the way from the glorious part of, of the state known as Mid-Missouri is... Mike Kehoe. A state senator from Jefferson City. Uh, I was telling the senator before the show as a former reporter for the Columbia Daily Tribune and other outlets in mid-Missouri, I always love it when mid-Missouri people come, especially because mid-Missouri loves a Mike Kehoe deal. That's right. Well, I hope they do. I, <laughs> and uh, it's always it's a pleasure to be with, you know, some people call you the mighty Jason Rosenbaum. And you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Dave Drebus right. calls, calls yeah. me that. Um, so we're going to get into a bunch of different topics today. We're going to tackle transportation policy, unemployment policy, and maybe peer a little bit into the future of Senator Kehoe's political plans. But before we start, we always like to let our listeners know what your district is. So what is your district that you represent in the Missouri Senate? Well, sure. I represent the uh, sixth senatorial district, and that district is made up of seven counties. Uh, Cole County, which is where Jefferson City is, is the center. And then I have three counties to the west, which is Miller, Monotaw, and Morgan. And I have three counties to the east, which is Osage, Gasconade, and Marys. All those counties are south of the Missouri River, but they run right up to the Missouri River. So we have a large stretch of river that defines one of the boundaries of the 6th Senatorial District. And I guess that would basically encompass Jefferson City, the state capital, and a bunch of counties that, I guess, encompass Lake of the Ozarks, right. too. The lake is made up of three counties, so mm-hmm. it's uh, Miller, Morgan, and Camden. Um, Senator Brown, Doc Brown, has Camden as part of his district, but I have two of the three counties that make up Lake of the Ozarks. And just for full disclosure for our listeners, I used to... Uh, vacation occasionally in Tantera <laughs> Resort. I, I don't know which county that's in, but it was very nice. Yeah, so. it's in Camden County. Well, it's, but, not, it's not yours. but yeah, The lake is a great um, area. It's a, a large economic engine for the entire state. and so. Um, but it really uh, it, it shows how diversified our Senate district is. We Correct. Have the, we have the seat of government in one of our counties, in Cole County, and then we have the seat of our recreational industry, uh, to the west side of it, and um, and then obviously a large agricultural community, including the wine industry, to the east part in Gasconade County. Absolutely. So we really have a lot of diversity within our district. Yeah, and we used to go to the lake a lot when our kids were growing up. So you're one of the people in the Missouri Senate who was not elected to anything before you got into Missouri politics. But before we even get to 2010, when you won your first Senate race, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where he went to high school. That's right. And uh, kind of what you did before you entered legislative politics. Well, I was born and raised in North City, St. Louis. I always tease my friend Gina Walsh. She's from North North County. I'm from North City, St. Louis. Really? Really? Yes. Where at? Walnut Park. Okay. Kind of the Calvary Cemetery area. Yeah. Baden. Yes. Yes. Now, I got to ask this question because I interviewed uh, Dave Sinclair's son, James Sinclair, and apparently they grew up in North St. Louis City, too. Did you did you know that family growing up? I grew up with James. Unbelievable. My connection (laughs) to the Sinclair family is James Sinclair. I mean, there's seven kids and they used to tease me and say I was the eighth adopted one. But James is uh, my buddy still today. I just I just interviewed him about Melville because their main dealership is there and how it's changed. And they mentioned to me that they lived in North St. Louis City. 
Dave Sinclair used to be a police officer. My, Dave Sinclair and my father were beat cops together for the St. Louis City Police Department. Really? Mm -hmm. They walked the beat, and they were partners. And that's how our family's relationship started way before I was born. So where did you go to high school? Chaminade. Chaminade. Out on Lindbergh. So yes. did my son. <laughs> oh, did he? Great. Estovere. <laughs> So, yes, my mom, what I didn't know is my brother went to a school that uh, that closed in the early 70s called McBride on yes. Kings Highway. Yes, And that was the Brothers of Mary who taught there. And uh, when it came time for me to go to high school, my mom had followed a, a relationship with some of the Brothers of Mary who were teaching at Chaminade. And she sent me, you know, most kids in St. Louis get to choose their high school. You yes. have the high school day where you yes. go around all the high yes. schools. And I thought I was going to St. Louis U High. They had a rifle range in the basement. <laughs> and my mom said, no, you're going out with the Brothers of Mary to Chaminade. And oh, I said, yes, ma'am. So All this Catholic school inside baseball, I, as, uh, as a, a guy whose name is Rosenbaum, is going way over my head at <laughs> yeah. this point. Oh, yes. Chaminade were some of the best years of my son's but, life. But, but I, you know, as, a, as not only a political reporter in Columbia, but just as an everyday Colombian, um, I think when you ran it in 2010, I think you automatically had huge name recognition because your commercials for your car dealership well, were let, on yeah, everywhere. Yeah, because he hasn't mentioned this yet. So what how do you do you, for a living? Right. Well, through our, yeah. my relationship with the Sinclair family, Mr. Sinclair was uh, very instrumental in helping me acquire the uh, Ford and Lincoln franchise in Jefferson City in 1992. Uh, I had married a girl from Chicago and uh, we moved to Jefferson City and we had been the local uh, Ford dealer in Jefferson City for 20 years. And I'm like some other Missourians, I was an aggravated taxpayer. I wasn't a pol professional politician and an opportunity came up where term limit limits uh, presented an uh, open Senate seat for our district. and. Um, so my family and I talked about it, and I thought maybe this is a time to make a difference and you know, let somebody in that building that's not a career politician, that understands small business, that's been involved in the charitable community that was on the Highway Commission, understood right. some transportation issues, and it seemed like a good fit, and so uh, we gave it a whirl. Yeah, you were running against, I think, three other people. That's Two correct. had been, I think, state representatives, and one of them was a, an accountant. And, you know, I notice in these Senate races that sometimes the, the, the non-elected politician has some a bit of an advantage because they don't have a voting record. I guess in your case, you were still kind of a pseudo public figure because you were part of the Highway Commission. Right. I had been on the Highway Commission for five years before I ran for Senate. Yeah, I, I think yeah, we, we need to make that clear. When did you go on the Highway Commission? 2005. Okay. Right. And um, you ended up winning, spoiler alert, because we're... For, for the state Senate, right. And um, you did not have an opponent last cycle. This is a super Republican district, so whoever wins that Republican primary wins the whole thing, basically. I actually did have a Democratic opponent in the uh, last cycle oh, in 2014. I apologize. Yeah, and and all in deference to her, nice lady, um, uh, had some different ideas, but uh, fortunately I uh, was able to win that. It was not a targeted race because, again, it is a super Republican district. So you are you have been in the Senate now for, I guess, a little over four years. You were the chairman of the Transportation Committee for a while. I guess you're the chairman of a different committee right now. What's kind of your role in the Senate? Yeah. Um, Senator Dempsey asked me if I would chair the Energy and Commerce Committee, um, and so I— uh, you know, I like to be a team player and go where he, he thinks I'm needed. Uh, but you're right, the previous two years I had chaired the Transportation Committee. Um, I was fortunate enough that the caucus elected me after just two years there to be Assistant Majority Floor Leader. So um, I help uh, Senator Richard, who's the Majority Leader from Joplin, Missouri, uh, kind of run the floor. We're, we call ourselves the traffic cops. That's, you know, try to get the bills out there, give time for... Uh, senators to debate their bill. And uh, in the Senate, it's a slow and methodical process, as you know. 
and um, so that we have a lot of respect for that process and that is a nonpartisan respect. We, we want to make sure that we get uh, equal time for folks to uh, really debate the bills and get the issues out there. Now, is transportation still one of your key concerns? <clears throat> oh. And, and how would you kind of, just in general, address, I mean, see what Missouri's transportation issues right yeah, now? Yeah, because right now, um, after the failure of Amendment 7, I got to make sure I got that number right. It's been a while. Which was the proposed the uh, sales, sales tax. tax. You know, you know, after that failed, everyone was like, well, we're going to come up with an alternative. And it seems to me that any time you put forward any proposal, whether it be sales tax, whether it be tolls, whether it be gas tax, there is just howling from people that they don't want to do any of that. So how do you how do you get some sort of consensus on this issue? Well, it's a very difficult com uh, conversation because Missouri's transportation needs are so diverse. And I'll give you, for instance, um, in rural Missouri, when you go to a, a coffee shop, uh, what they say is, why are we passing a sales tax to fix um, bike trails and take care of mass transit? We don't, we, we don't want our uh, transportation dollars spent on that. And when you come to St. Louis or Kansas City, the conversation in those coffee shops are, why in the world do we want to put a shoulder and a rumble strip on a letter route? What is a letter route? Yeah. And so the needs and the priorities, because of the diversity of our state, are so different, it makes the conversation Oops. very challenging. And to your point, Jason, um, every time you come up with an action or a solution, there's a reaction. And it's hard to coalesce behind one solution. We thought the sales tax idea, which I thought was a good idea to give a whirl to because uh, gas tax revenues are going down. Missouri's gas tax is a flat tax. It's not indexed to the price of gas. Uh, federal government um, through the Federal Trust Fund has really been struggling lately uh, with their ability to help states out with transportation dollars. And fuel efficiency in vehicles um, really has made a difference in the gas um, usage in the state going down and therefore our gas tax has gone down. So the sales tax seemed like something that um, was a uh, was not an overburdensome amount um, and would make a difference in uh, Missouri to be able to support all types of transportation because constitutionally the gas tax has to be spent on the road and bridge. In my district that's fine that's what they want it to be spent on. In St. Louis, Kansas City, Springfield, even Columbia they'd like flexibility in their transportation dollars. So the sales tax would allow those communities to prioritize transportation projects that might not have been a road or a bridge and be able to make some improvements. But that's kind of in the rear view mirror, so to speak. So looking forward, what do you think can <laughs> or awful. should I'm be sorry. done? <laughs> yeah. But, it, yeah, you know, but like, right, for example, the, the governor has put out a report or asked <coughs> MoDOT to put out a report on tollways. And as a native Chicagoan, um, the idea of putting tollways may seem, you know, like a good idea here because it's never been done before. But once you put it, you know, gates out at every three or four miles, especially for people that live out of state, it's pretty frustrating. Like, what's your take on the, the tollway for I-70, for example? I can't let your rearview mirror comment go because, A, I'm a car dealer, no. and B, I always tell my kids there's a reason that the rearview mirror is one-tenth of the size of the windshield. Mm -hmm. We need to look at what we're going to, not what's behind exactly. us. Exactly. Right, right. Um, but to your point, um, just a couple of quick facts because I'm I've turned into a transportation geek. You know, Missouri has 34,000 miles of center lane roads yes. and 10,400 bridges. That makes us the seventh largest transportation infrastructure in the United States. Mm -hmm. But when you look at our funding, which is also measured by center lane of miles and square footage of bridge, bridge deck, we're 43rd. Mm -hmm. 43rd and 7th don't mix. 
The problem is, is that in 2004, a good thing happened and Missourians passed Amendment 3. Yes. Amendment 3 redirected the dollars. Remember, stopped the diversion. That was yes. the campaign. And it allowed, by state statute, the Highway Department and Highway Commission, which I was a part of at the time, to, and it by statute said, you shall set up a state road bond fund. You will bond these monies and you will accelerate projects and make improvements all across the state. In Amendment 3, you saw various things. No matter where you live in the state, you saw I-64 in St. Louis. I'm an old St. Louis, and right. so I say Highway Farty still. Um, you saw the Paseo Bridge in Kansas City. You saw the 802 bridge package all over rural Missouri. You saw uh, Smoother, Safer, Sooner, where um, roads were resurfaced, rumble stripes were installed, median guard cables were put up, fatalities dropped uh, significantly. A lot of great improvements were made to our roads, but it's created a double-edged sword because now when you go to Missouri and say we have a transportation problem, they say, the road I just drove on is pretty smooth. It's pretty good shape. Yeah. And what we know as a highway department and as a policymakers at the legislature, it's not going to stay that way. And because the revenue has dropped from all of the um, uh, funds that I mentioned earlier by a billion dollars since 2009, um, the Highway Commission just does not have the resources to maintain what you're driving on now. We're trying to tell Missourians we know there's something coming. But unfortunately, Missouri's a show-me state, and as long yeah. as the roads seem to be smooth and everything seems to be all right, they say, well, I don't know, we need more funding. So, so are are you interested? I know there's been some proposals about increasing the gas tax. There's, I mean, The aforementioned tolling, I-70. Right. Right. Well, remember that number I used, which was a billion dollars, and remember that we have the Hancock Amendment. So the legislature Correct. can't fix a billion dollars. Right. And I would say that's probably still as a conservative, I believe that's a good thing. So Missourians have to vote on the fix because the dollars are too big. Um, and so the proposals that may go forward could be, you know, the governor jumped out the other day or a month or so ago and said he, he thinks maybe we should look at tolling I-70. Or at least um, parts of it. Parts uh, of it. Yeah. Um, there's other uh, people have talked about a gas tax increase. Anything over about two cents a gallon would have to go before the voters. Okay. So if it's a significant amount of gas tax, if you took the Amendment 7 dollars that was proposed as a sales tax and translated that into what, how many cents on gas, that'd be about 24 cents a gallon. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure Missourians, you hear a lot of Missourians say, well, I'd support a gas tax. I think they mean two to four cents. I'm not sure right. they mean 24 cents. Especially since we have some of the lowest gas in the entire country. Right. So I, I think there's a, there, I think it's going to be a little bit of a smorgasbord of trying to put together, piece together some pieces of the puzzle that represent um, the unique diversity that we just talked about in the state. For instance, in Georgia, they broke up their state into nine different geographical districts and let each of those districts vote on a different solution to fund transportation. Um, and so what happened was in, in rural Missouri, if we did that, and I don't know if it will work or not, they made sure those projects went to what was important to rural Missouri. Right. Like I said, uh, widening a letter route, putting a rumble strip on that. And then in the urban core, they let their, that, their tax dollars go towards transportation. Amendment 7 had the list, which was all on there, but Missourians didn't quite grasp that. So maybe if we looked at this regionality-wise and proposed a solution that uh, Missourians could look at, that might be one way to approach it. 36 other states use tolls. Uh, toll roads are a corridor fix. They're not a system fix. Mm -hmm. So a toll road might take care of an I-70, but it doesn't take care of our state transportation problem. Right. You can't put a toll. Right. And that's what everybody's got to remember. You can't put a toll road on a rural route, you a -A. in Pulaski right. County or <laughs> right. whatever. So. Yeah. So at this point, I mean, uh, is there any potential that they might uh, – 
try going before the voters with a, a sales tax again? Not in the short term, but farther down. I mean, is there a feeling that maybe it just wasn't communicated well? Well, um, I'm going to try not to be partisan with my answer. In 11 other states, um, in the last five years, they have moved to a sales tax model to partially fund transportation. In all of those 11 states, their governor was not only for it, he was out in front and campaigning for it. Um, our governor, um, before this proposal came up, told me and several of the highway commissioners that he was for this proposal. After it made it through the legislature uh, last June, he came out against the proposal, and then he moved it from the November ballot to the August ballot. Mm -hmm. I think if we had leadership in that office who was for a solution, whether it was mm -hmm. that one or not, and left it on the ballot that everybody was kind of, you know, you know how ballot initiatives work. Right. You try to put it on the ballot where you think you'll have the best success. You know, we might not be having this conversation right now. I'm not sure. It's, it's going to take a while for those questions, what, whatever the funding option is, to get back out before the voters because, um, you know, the, the environment's got to be right to put a question forward like that. And it's a very tough, hey, I, I hate taxes worse than anybody who will listen to this podcast. But at some point in time, I believe Missourians are sick of politicians who duck solutions because they're a hard conversation. I think we've got to have hard conversations and let people know what their options are. So uh, let's talk about something that you guess you're, you're doing right now with unemployment. Um, this was actually a bill that you sponsored last year that mm -hmm. Uh, could could you explain what it is? Because I don't want to explain it incorrectly. No, it does two things. The unemployment bill, um, we passed it through the House and Senate last year. We The Senate overrode the governor, the governor vetoed it. The Senate overrode that veto. Um, and then the House fell two votes short of an override. So it's the exact same bill. And it does two things. It, it um, So Missouri has a pot of money called the Unemployment Trust Fund that employ, Missouri employers pay into all the time, every day, based on their employees and their payroll. Um, back in 2009 and 10, um, Missouri's unemployment trust fund went broke. There wasn't enough money to fund all the employment claims with the downturn in the uh, economy. So what Missouri did, and many states that had to do this, they borrowed money from the federal government to fund unemployment claims. When that money came from the federal government, it comes with penalties, interest, all kinds of things. Federal government does very good when they get repaid for these unemployment loans. And that assessment, what happened was, so Missouri employers in 10, 11, and 12 were still paying their normal unemployment insurance like they've been, like they always do, but they got additional assessment as, some, as much as uh, going to $84 per employee for every employer to help pay back the federal loan. And mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was ridiculous that uh, as employers are just trying to come out of a bad economy that they have this additional cost. Because remember, some people say, oh, you're just whining about employers. Remember, any business incurs a cost. Those costs eventually get passed on to the consumer. Sure. So uh, you want to keep Missouri employers competitive. You want to make it a good workplace. Um, and, and we want the economy to grow. So that wasn't the right message to send to businesses across the state. Our bill, what our bill does is says that um, if the uh, if we ever have to get into a situation where we have to borrow money from the federal government, we should bond that balance um, and pay it off over time versus borrowing from the federal government having to pay it back quicker and have to pay all these penalties. It doesn't force bonding. It just asks the bonding board, they call it the buff board in the state of Missouri, to look at bonding the balance. But number two, and more importantly, is how do we keep from getting in that hole again? What it does is it ties, several states have done this, it ties the number of weeks an employee can get if they uh, have to be on unemployment to the state's unemployment percentage. So if the unemployment is really bad, um, you know, 7% or higher, I believe, they get 20 weeks of unemployment just like they do now. 
However, if unemployment rates are at 5 or 5% 5 or below, they qualify for 13 weeks. And there's a sliding scale in between right. those two numbers. Now, I wanted to and ask, and yeah, so what that yeah, does yeah. is tries to help keep a stronger balance in that trust fund. So if we do hit another dip in the re economy, we're not out borrowing from the feds again. Now, I understand the rationale because I think I've talked with other people that say, you know, paying out unemployment for businesses is expensive with the premiums and whatnot. But let's just let's just say I'm a person who has a lower to middle class job and I lose my job under the situation where there's only 13 weeks unemployment. And after the 13 weeks run out, I don't have the wherewithal to pay my bills anymore. Yeah, but you understand you still qualify for federal unemployment. That's true. And that's many, many times as much as 50 weeks. That number varies pretty much, but generally it's somewhere between 40 and 50 weeks. It's been even higher than that when the recession hit. So when you couple the federal unemployment with the state unemployment, you could be on benefits under this bill even when there's plenty of jobs available for over a year. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that most reasonable people would say that that's probably enough time uh, to get back in the market and try to find something, especially if our unemployment rate is 5% or lower. Mm -hmm. Now, um, at, what's your prognosis on that, Bill? And are there other... Well, the House took it up again this year, um, and they passed it in just a few weeks. It's already come over to the Senate. Uh, Senate bill will have a hearing uh, this week, and I believe um, Senator Richard and Senator Dempsey are both both very committed to uh, getting that bill taken up as a priority and, and get it back to the governor's desk. Now, separate, another issue, and this is somewhat tied to the transportation, but also other things, is there is, from your uh, vantage point as a car dealer, you kind of understand this. There's also the Tesla legal fight, which which actually began with with a legislative bill last session, which didn't get through. And I just wanted to ask you really quickly: Do you currently own a car dealership, or did you already sell your car no, dealership? No, um, in two, November of 2011. Um, we merge with the Mockins Automotive Group out of Columbia. Mm -hmm. So I don't own any piece of that business. However, I do, to make it clear, I still do work for them and help them with some of their expansion strategies and some of the okay. facility building and stuff like that. Just wanted to get that out of the way. Continue, right. Joe. And Tesla, just so our listeners know, is an electric car. Right. Mm -hmm. But they use a different m way to sell them. They don't have dealerships. So uh, do you want to explain just a little bit about sure. the suit, just in basics? Well, sure. Well, Tesla is a, uh, a new startup company based out of California. It's started by Elon Musk, who is a guy who builds rockets and all kinds of different stuff. And Tesla, let me be clear, is a very cool car. I've been in the car. I love it. It's a neat car. Um, it's an electric car, but, you know, all manufacturers have electric cars now. Ford, Chevy, Honda, we all have electric cars on the showroom that you can get. But what Tesla did as a model um, is that they went out and said, we're not going to have dealers. We're just going to sell factory direct. And on the surface, consumers would say, ooh, that's a really good deal. I can buy factory direct and save money. But what that means is you don't have a competitive advantage of two dealers trying to give you the best deal. You're paying full retail for that car when you buy factory direct. And we believe the Missouri Auto Dealers Association is that Missouri has a Missouri state franchise statute that was enacted in 1980 that lists very specifically how Missouri dealers should act should they distribute automobiles. We would like Teslas sold in the state of Missouri. We believe they should have to go through a franchise auto dealer. Governor Nixon decided through his Department of Revenue that they would create a unique tier for Tesla and all of a sudden just not pay attention to these 1980 franchise laws that all dealers have to follow and create some kind of new tier that is not in state statute that says, okay, we'll just let Tesla sell direct. 
Um, and it's not, you know, some people say, well, the car dealers are just whining again. You know, the 1980 uh, statute was put in place as a consumer protection piece because I'll guarantee you what legislators thought back then was we don't want our constituents out buying cars and then they have a problem with it and they go back and the dealership's out of business or the brand right. has folded and there's nobody there to take care of them uh, because that's what will happen. Um, and it might not be Tesla. It could be a Chinese company that decides to follow this model and start selling cars direct at a higher volume. Tesla's a very low volume. It's a very expensive car. But you start getting high volumes of cars in here, and your constituents all of a start ending up with these things. They don't have a local dealer to go to that um, is providing jobs and involved in the community to back up to help them take care of that car after the purchase has been made. So uh, that's what the intent of the law was way before I was in the legislature. I almost said I was in grade school then, probably but high school. <laughs> um, and so that's what the, the franchise dealers are saying. We've had to abide by this franchise law. Let's just make it a level playing field. And I think the consumer would benefit from that as well because they'd have the local dealer that they're used to seeing at the heart ball and their kids on the soccer field and they go to church with to take care of those problems should something arise. We've got to remember there's been many brands in the last 10 years that don't exist anymore. Saturn doesn't exist anymore. Trust Hammer. me. I yeah. know. I was a big yeah. Saturn fan. Yeah. Mercury, uh, which we had. Uh, don't People don't remember Eagle. Remember the old Jeep Eagle? Plymouth. Yes. So, unfortunately, things happen in the market that causes a manufacturer um, to not make it. And there's a whole other conversation on Tesla's financials. But what, if, that car, if that car were manufactured to go out of business, customers, consumers who would listen to this all over the state – they know that they can still, when Mercury went out of business, I was a Mercury dealer. When people came with a Mercury, I still took care of them because I'm the business guy. I'm the face of the brand. I'm the one that's involved in the community. I just didn't turn my back on them. What, what will customers do when there is a massive recall on some of these cars? What, where will they take these things? They, 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 they don't have anywhere to go. Now, the lawsuit, though, is against the State Department of Revenue. It is. It it's is. not it's against the, Tesla. The, the lawsuit is not about Tesla. It is about the Department of Revenue's decision to create kind of this unique tier and issue a franchise license. So, so. is that is that affecting, like, other issues from the standpoint that since Matt has sued the Department of Revenue, and that's part of the Nixon administration, is this affecting peripheral issues since the suit's going on? No, I, I, I don't I don't think there's other issues that it's affected. Um um, as you know, that's the breaking news is Tesla has decided to intervene on this lawsuit. And, you know, I think the dealer association is saying fine because it's not about Tesla. It's about the Department of Revenue's decision to not follow the 1980 statute that's been on the books that every other dealer has had to follow. So what do you see as the other major issues uh, if you dealing with transportation and unemployment, um, other major issues that you will be involved in this legislative session? Well, there's a lot of, uh, as I mentioned, um, Senator Dempsey has asked me to be the chairman of Energy and Commerce. There's uh, a lot of concern from uh, Missourians about the overreach that the EPA seems to be um, enacting, especially in the agriculture industry, as it has to do with the Clean Water Act. Um, utility companies, everything from our electric co-ops to our investor-owned utilities, are concerned about the overreach on the Clean Air Act. And to the extent that we can work with DNR and make sure that we use some common sense practices before we get there. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who lives in the state or listening to this podcast that wants dirty water or dirty air. But at some point in time, you have to use a reasonable measurement of how to get there. We have, uh, I filed a bill out there that says that before you 
um, enact some of these EPA standards, we have to look at what the economic impact is. I have a little town in Osage County called Chamoy, Missouri, um, and they've had a coal plant there since 1965. That plant was shut down last year. 32 jobs were lost. The school district's major source of funding from property tax revenue is gone. The town literally could dry up just because of the closure of that plant. And not all of the reason, but a large part of the reason they closed were the additional air quality standards that had to um, be enacted to make that plant run to EPA standards. Now, nobody in the area was getting sick. There weren't dead birds in the fields. There wasn't an effect on the uh, uh, ecological system around that area. It was just continuing to keep up with air quality standards, even though the plant had the best safety record, had no problems out there, was producing and generating electricity for Missourians. I mean, those are the kind of things we got to start saying, whoa, wait a minute, before we put these onerous um, rules that the administration out of D.C. is promulgating onto Missourians and Missouri businesses, let's make sure it doesn't have a, a, a bad effect on uh, the local economy. Now, a couple of political things before we wrap up here. While I was on vacation in actually chilly Florida, believe it or not, <laughs> um, I noticed... It was a cool wave instead of a heat wave? <laughs> it was like 50 and 60 degrees. Uh, no swimming for, 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 for Jason uh, during that time. I noticed there was kind of a minor tiff in one of your committees with, yeah. with, with, with recording a video. Can you tell me a little bit about sure. that? Sure. Well, in our first energy committee, um, we were contacted by um, somebody who wanted to videotape the recording. And the rules of the Senate, which have been in place long before me, say that if you're a Missouri member of the Missouri Press Corps, you're allowed to do that. And you just call the chairman's office, and, and we know you're there, and we allow it. Um, and other than that, um, we do not allow, the Senate does not allow videotaping of committees. However, anybody who can go to it, obviously, it's open to the public. And you can also work through the Senate Communications Office, and they'll give you a copy of a video that you've seen Dean stand there many a times that's recording yes. these committee hearings. Right. And they can have it. Um, they didn't like that answer. Yeah, it was so. it was a group called Progress Missouri who tracks a lot of people. Was the concern that they're a political group and some of the footage may be used in campaigns or something, or is it just more of a protocol thing? No, it wasn't that. It was more about the rules of the Senate, and I think the Senate is a very traditional place that has rules established for a reason, yes. and, um, and I believe that uh, there's a lot to be said for following those rules and keeping those traditions alive, and there's still full access to all that information. And, and, and trust me, if you don't wear a suit jacket in the Senate, you get kicked out. So yes, I, I know that for a fact. Is there any... Is there, is there any, like, desire maybe to live stream a lot of these with Senate communications? You know, we've tried to, in one of the hearing rooms, as you know, we have a go cam down there, yeah. and we're starting to play with some of that technology. As the uh, Capitol hopefully uh, gets remodeled at some point in time um, and we fix the structure up that's falling apart, I'm hoping that we put better technology into the hearing rooms. Because that would solve the problem right, right. there. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, there have been d discussions about that, um, about the fact that, yeah, I mean, while— I can listen. I can't see, but I can listen to the House and Senate floor proceedings. But you really, unless you're there, yeah, not yeah. on the but, committee. But the senator's right. The Capitol is 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 old. They try, they need to kind of repair a lot of things, and there could be some technological problems because the Wi-Fi signal in the Capitol can it's be horrible. pretty pretty bad. Yeah. So I think when we do that remodeling, I know the current leadership, both in the House and Senate, was really in favor of trying to incorporate those changes. Now let's talk about 2016. Your term limited in 2018. I think that um, you've been kind of linked to a number of races. I mean, you, you're in the third congressional district, so you could potentially run for Congress. Uh, there's lieutenant governor. There's secretary of state. There's 
there's treasurer. I, I guess you can't be attorney general because thankfully you're not an attorney. Well, um, I, I tell uh, Attorney General Coster and then some of our Republican friends who are running Kurt Schaefer that I think there is uh, something on the books that says you don't have to be an attorney to run for attorney general. It's just like, I just do that to get their goat. It's just like the movie. It's just like the movie Airbud. Airbud was able to play basketball because even though there's no rule that says you can play basketball, uh, dogs can play basketball. There's no rule that says, says you, you can't. Can. So what are you thinking for 2016? Well, you know, I tell people that I'm a, a kind of a door is always open. I look through all the open doors, and mainly that's in my household. My wife is always trying to kick me out of the house, and that's why the door is open. She wants me out <laughs> more um, and out and about. But I never wanted to be a professional politician, but I am the father of four, and um, I have a very supportive family. And if there is an opportunity that uh, seems to make sense that I think we can make a change in policy and help Missourians, I'll certainly look at it. Um, I don't have any firm plans on in running for any of those offices, but I've been approached by several people. We've looked at several of them. And, um, Anyone's in particular? No, not re- I'm not going to run for governor. Okay. So I'll just okay. get that done on your okay. podcast okay. here right now. What about lieutenant governor? But I Kinder should never say run. never. Somebody told me the other day, never say never. Yeah. Uh, lieutenant Governor Kinder, I believe, is still going to run, and um, I think um, that probably will be a little bit of a full race. I think there's, 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 it's early on in the process in that a lot of the deck chairs are going to get reshuffled. Yeah, like, for example, um, although I think Congressman Luke DeMeyer said a couple weeks ago he's going to run for reelection. Had he decided to, like, run for governor, that would have been like a 30-way Republican primary that you would have probably been considered one of the top candidates for. So be, I'd say if uh, Congressman Luke DeMeyer, A, is a good friend of mine and does a good job, but if he ever decides to retire um, or get out of that for whatever reason, there will probably be a lot of people that look at that It, it will be. Um, because you know that district is huge. It goes all the yes. way from his town of Miller County and through Cole all the way up to St. Charles County and down into and unlike, Jefferson yes. County. Unlike yes. in 2008, which was probably one of the wackiest congressional primaries of ever, there, it would be a situation where the Republican primary winner becomes the congressman because it became more Republican after redistricting. Yeah, it, it did. It did get a little stronger Republican after the redistricting map. So we'll we'll see what the future holds. Um, it it really is. I'm a literally a poor kid from North City, St. Louis. So every day I walk on that Senate floor and we start with a prayer and a pledge of allegiance. I still get goosebumps, and uh, and I mean that. It's it's an honor to be there. All right, we'll wrap up this show. Thank you so much for coming here. Thanks um, for having me on. To, to close this out, you can follow all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. Um, and just as a quick shout-out to our former host, Chris McDaniel, who has left St. Louis Public Radio, I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank him for all of his contributions, both to our show and to our station. I know that he's going to do very well in his next projects and, and his future, and um, I just wanted to thank him. and. I have now taken dictatorial control over his show. Uh, thank you for that. Um, to, you can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Uh, you can follow Joe on Twitter at... At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I don't think you have a Twitter account. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my 17-year-old daughter to set one up for me. I'm on Facebook, though. Okay. Yes, follow okay. him on Facebook. You're part of the bumper crop of politically speaking people <laughs> who are only on Facebook. And I think you made the, the right decision, even though I'm a Twitter uh, obsessive. Uh, yeah, I was going to say I'm Twitter obsessive, too. Until then, so long. Mm-hmm.